Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. What I'm not prepared to do is rule out or place a moratorium on future coal and gas projects. These things do have to be decided on a case-by-case basis. And I don't think it's fair to discard those principles of international accounting for carbon pollution. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be ambitious. Hello, lovely pod people, and welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, the host, and you are on uh, the Australian Politics Podcast. And delightfully... With me in the pod cave this week is Tanya Plibersek, who is, well, the not so new now, right? Like a couple of months. A couple of months, you know, who's counting? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The new Environment and Water Minister. And there's an awful lot to talk about in your portfolio. So, well, let's start with a portfolio, actually, because, you know, it was sort of commonly said around the place that, you know, oh, you'd, you'd been demoted, quote unquote. I thought I would just ask you whether you felt demoted. No, I'm really excited about the portfolio. Uh, I think the last election reminded us that Australians care deeply about the environment and having the opportunity to make sure that we leave our country and the planet a bit better for our kids and grandkids is a really exciting opportunity. Yeah, well, I always thought, well, I don't know, maybe I'm just reflecting my own interests and sensibilities, but I thought that was a rather strange observation. Well, I mean, you and a lot of other people, I I really do think Australians care deeply about the environment and they want some practical ways that they can make a difference and they want a government that's committed to action. And I think the election showed that. And that's the challenge that I'm really enjoying. Yeah, okay. And it's also a very powerful job administratively and in a regulatory sense. And we've already seen the first use of your powers in an interesting decision last week in relation to Clive Palmer's proposed open-cut coal mine, basically immediately adjacent to the Great Barrier Reef. So it's a powerful job. What do you want to do with it? What sort of environment minister do you want to be? Well, I want to be an environment minister that leaves our environment better off when I'm done in the role. We saw the State of the Environment report a few weeks ago. I released it publicly. Obviously, it had been sitting on the desk of the previous environment minister since before Christmas. And what that report told us is that in Australia today, the state of the environment is bad and getting worse. Yeah. It's not something we can turn around overnight, but I hope when I'm done with this role, whenever that might be, that we can say that the environment is getting better, Mm -hmm. not worse. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of things we need to do to make that happen. The first is 
reform the laws that have got us to this stage. I mean, the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, written in 1999, I think pretty much everyone agrees it's not fit for purpose. Mm -hmm. Anything that is making the environment worse <laughs> and also not meeting the needs of business, I think by definition is not fit for purpose legislation. Mm -hmm. So we need to reform the EPBC Act. We need to institute a strong environmental protection agency. We need to protect more of our land and oceans. We need to reverse the trend of species extinctions. Um, and there's also the sort of practical day-to-day -day things we can do to improve the environment. Like this morning I was out at a waste recycling facility here on the outskirts of Canberra. Um, we're co-investing with the ACT government and, and um, private proponents as well in upgrading recycling facilities here so that we can have better quality, broader recycling. And when it comes to organic waste in particular, make that kitchen waste and garden waste into fertiliser for our soils. I mean, there's so many practical things that we can do that I think Australians are really keen to participate in. Mm. If only they've got the I suppose, the, the settings, if only we as government yeah. get the settings right. Yeah, well, the settings matter. And just to that point, because obviously there was a review of the EPBC Act, which is your act by Graham Samuel uh, in the last term of the government. Now, just one thing, because I don't know the answer to this question. So obviously he recommended an overhaul of the Act and he recommended something called an Environment Assurance Commissioner. Is that... Obviously, you flagged tenure and EPA. Yep. Are they similar but different? So Graham Samuels, as you say, did a review of the EPBC Act. This is a review that essentially confirms what I said a second ago, that the legislation as it exists at the moment is not fit for purpose. It doesn't yep. meet the needs of the environment. It doesn't meet the needs of business or other proponents of projects. And he, he made a number of recommendations. We will come back before the end of the year with a formal response to the Samuel Review. Yeah. That formal response to the Samuel Review will be the basis for our government rewriting environmental protection yeah. laws. One of his recommendations uh, is this role that you're talking about. I see that as a, it's not interchangeable with a strong environmental protection agency, but it is complementary. It is saying that the more integrity and assurance and independence that we can put around some of these decisions. Mm. And the more work we do on compliance at the other end, so first of all, the decision needs to be a decision with integrity and without sort of political uh, yep. pressure, yep. interference. It needs to be more based on the legislation, less based on the politics. But the, the, the assurance part of this is really important as well because quite often what happens is projects are approved under very strict conditions and then those conditions are not met. Yeah. And the consequences yeah. for not meeting those conditions really haven't been there. So at either end of the approval process and the assurance process, we need more independence and more integrity. I yeah, think. but just like, again, <laughs> sorry to ask the really deeply dumb question, yeah. but like, so in your mind, there would be an EPA and this assurance commissioner so that they, they, they two, or it might be one body with different functions or? It depends. Yeah. Uh, we're still in the process of responding Actually to responding. the Sam Samuels yeah. review. When we have that response ready, we'll consult with states and territories, with um, environmental organisations, with business organisations. Uh, we'll, you know, make it possible for public to 
give feedback on that. And then when we've got that work done, the response to the Samuel Review recommendations, you know, public ability to comment on that, the next stage is drafting legislation and setting up these institutions. I don't really want to start ruling things in or out yeah, at yeah, this stage. Yeah. Yes, well, I'm, <laughs> let's let's play here's, the role. Here's yes, something. no, no, here's no, no, something you want no, to no, rule no. Out. In relation to that, I mean, we'll talk about a climate trigger in, in a minute because yep. this is an issue a, a lot of people are talking about. But in terms of the EPA versus the Assurance Commission, I just I've never come to terms with whether or not that yeah, would yeah. be one or two, right? So but, I think that the um, impetus for an environmental protection agency has come from the fact that we have. EPAs in a number of states and they play a really important role. People look to overseas experience and they see a lot of these decisions are taken at arm's length from the minister. The way that the EPBC Act is written at the moment is there is a lot of discretion um, Mm. with the minister and that can be a good thing, but it's not always a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and finding that balance is a really important part of this response. So just uh, before I get to climate trigger, the inevitable question, just in terms of the Samuel review, so obviously Graham Samuel did this review. He was commissioned by the previous Morrison government to do it. I don't mean anything improper or unprofessional here in what I'm about to observe. I'm just making a statement of the obvious, right? He did that review in a very different political context to the one that exists now. There's a change of government, you change the government, you change the country, you, you change a whole lot of yep. mores, right? Yep. Uh, because from what I've heard you say to date, Tanya, your sort of inclination is that like the Samuel reviews the scaffolding, right, for how you're kind of approaching this issue. I guess I've just got like, again, possibly a stupid question, but the kind of basic question, it's sort of like if we ask Graham Samuel to do the review today under this government, he would likely come up with different options, wouldn't he? Because it's sort of like everybody... Everybody who does a review like that is obviously independent of government but understands the political context that they're working in. So what do you think about that? If we ask Graham Samuel, like, would you ask Graham Samuel yeah, yeah. to redo his review? No. Yeah. Look, yes. Of course I've spoken to Graham Samuel yeah. about the review and his findings and why he took particular positions that he did in some of the recommendations. But the thing that is appealing as the Samuel Review as a starting point for law reform is that there's quite broad agreement from environmental groups and yeah. business groups yeah. that this is a good start. Yeah. So I think if we throw that out and think we're going to start again with a blank sheet of paper, we're talking about years of design yeah. and consultation. I understand that. That yep. will lead us to somewhere in the same area that Graham Samuel got to. So let's start with what's there. If there are improvements that can be made, if it can be strengthened in some areas. That's a terrific conversation to be having with states and territories and other stakeholders with the public broadly. And of course, people will have the opportunity of making those points. I just don't want to go back to a blank sheet of paper because that's just more delay, more division, lack of action. Yeah, yeah, understand. So the climate trigger has come up because of the climate negotiation around the targets bill. Obviously, your counterpart in the Greens, Sarah Hanson-Young, is proposing or has flagged the introduction of a bill. A lot of people are, are talking about this in the context of a moratorium you have when you're not having a moratorium, I guess, <laughs> like to be to be direct about it. So 
I've noticed you haven't ruled it out and you said to me a minute ago, yes, look, we can spend the entire podcast, you know, playing the rule in, rule out game if you want, Catherine, but I am really interested in this, right? You have not ruled this out, but you've also said you're attracted to Samuel who was talking about sort of climate in the context of standards. So have you got an idea in your mind about, because look, maybe I'm wrong, but I assume (laughs) as the environment minister you know and would want climate to be part of the assessment-making framework because the state of the environment report, if it, you know, confirms one thing, it confirms that these things are now not able, they're, they're indivisible, right? So what do you think about all of that? So you're right. I'm not going to start ruling things in or out at this stage, but there's a few general comments that I would make. The first is that in a number of ways, our carbon pollution from projects is already counted, both the actual carbon pollution from the project itself, but also if you're talking about very large projects that will, for example, emit more than 100,000 tonnes of emissions every year, that gets picked up in the safeguards mechanism in the the carbon pollution legislation that we passed through the House of Representatives last week. What I'm not prepared to do is rule out or place a moratorium on future coal and gas projects. These things do have to be decided on a case-by-case basis. And the way that, or you know, and I'm sure your listeners know as well, the way that international accounting for carbon pollution emissions is done is that you are responsible for what you're admitting as a country. Yeah. So we drive Japanese cars or Korean cars or German cars in Australia. It's not Japan or Korea or Germany that's responsible for those car emissions. We are as Australians. Mm. So I, I don't think it's fair to discard those principles of international accounting for carbon pollution. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be ambitious. Like We have an incredible opportunity to be a renewable energy superpower. We should take that up. We should be aiming for more renewables in our electricity grid. We should be looking for opportunities to not just reduce the pollution that we're emitting, but to use our carbon credits markets to restore land, regenerate, revegetate. I'm interested in not just using carbon credits there, but looking at biodiversity credits as well. So we get an additional biodiversity benefit when we're doing that sort of work. So there are great opportunities here for us, reducing emissions, doing better on the environment, but I'm not going to, you know, at this stage be making pronouncements about climate triggers. But it's However, of... and I have to say, when you use that terminology, it means very different things yeah, well, to, that's, to different well, people. That's, yeah, that's really the point, I guess, is that we could call it a climate trigger, but there would be a million different ways of actually doing the same thing or similar things, yeah. you know, along a sort of curve. And the thing that I guess I, in terms, again, conceptually about a climate trigger, right, as we said at the top, right, this is a portfolio with a lot of power, you can actually exercise a lot of power on this ministerial power and discretion. In terms of a climate trigger, if there was a sort of explicit climate trigger that was in EPBC, there's another bit of power or there's another kind of linchpin. So, I mean, would the government be perhaps concerned that Jim Chalmers might have a view on whether or not a project proceeds? Madeleine King might have a view on whether... You you know what I mean? We're just getting into incredibly speculative territory (laughs) here. So if there was one, if it was designed in this way, what would different people have? Go back to what I said earlier. The, The Samuel Review will be the start of our negotiations on what our new environmental laws should look like. Yeah. 
uh, we'll consult on that. People will have the opportunity to, you know, pitch this if they want to. But uh, at this stage, I would say that there are already ways in which carbon pollution is taken into account in, in a number of, yep. you know, the, the laws we passed last week, for example. And the fact that we are serious about reducing our carbon pollution is demonstrated by the fact that this is one of the first bills that passed through our parliament. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that's important. That's something for us to be proud of. Well, well, and, and in relation to the decision that you made last week in relation to the project in Queensland, the coal project in Queensland. Now, I understand you are a legal decision maker here, so I'm treading very lightly. Yes. Obviously, feel free to say as much or as little yep. as you want in yep. response to this question. But I presume climate or the climate impacts is one of the factors in the decision. Am I right? Uh, look, you're right that I have to be careful in what I say um, because of my role as a decision maker under the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, yep. I have to not have prejudged when I make a decision. It has to be based on all of the available evidence and I have to give a fair hearing to both sides. So what I've said at the moment is that I am inclined to reject this proposal because of its unacceptable risks to the Great Barrier Reef. And it is 9.7 kilometres from the shoreline of the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. In those waters are important fish breeding grounds, uh, seagrass meadows that dugongs feed on and turtles. The water, the water that surrounds the project as well, the groundwater and streams uh, are very sensitive. Yeah. And so my inclination, of course, is to uh, not proceed with this. But there's a 10-day consultation period uh, that's open at the moment. And I will wait for that consultation period to be complete. I will conclude consultation with the Queensland State Government, with the proponents of the project, with the opponents of the project, and then I'll make my final decision. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's again sort of go back to a couple a couple of principles related to overhauling the EPBC Act. I think Samuel was sort of of the view that if you set standards, a lot of the, the decision-making could be devolved to the states, for example. Yeah. What do you think about that conceptually? Oh, look, I think the problem with the way the previous government responded to the Samuel review is they just read that we can devolve um, decision-making to the states mm. and went, you beauty, we mm. can get out of environmental decision-making and we'll leave it all to the states. And I don't agree with that approach. Um, equally, I think what's often happening at the moment is you have either parallel or sequential assessments by state and territory and Commonwealth governments that add months and sometimes years to project approvals, which really make no sense either. So there does definitely need to be a streamlining mm -hmm. of this approvals between state and territory governments and the Commonwealth Government. And if, if you had agreement about the objectives we were trying to achieve with our environmental laws, you could have what people call one-touch or single-touch approval. Yeah. But you have to have the objective clear in the first place. So if we've got high national standards, um, then both business and environmental groups have said, we can live with that. If we know this is what the standard is, we don't really mind whether it's state, territory or Commonwealth government doing the assessment. Mm -hmm. Having high national standards is really important and having really good, robust data. A lot of what happens at the moment is we collect the same data 
again and again. It's not sort of interoperable, the data mm. that we collect. Mm-hmm. So th- there's so much kind of wheel spinning going on. Well, really what we're trying to do with the rewriting of our environmental laws is go back to a more sensible grounding. So you start with what are we trying to achieve? If this area is so pristine that we're never going to allow anything to happen on it, mining, forestry, homes, roads, dams, whatever, if it's so pristine that that's never going to happen, let's say that at the beginning and not waste years of people, you know, trying to build a a suburban subdivision on it. If the alternative is true, if if we're already building in this area, if there's existing roads, dams, mines, farms, forestry, then what are the rules that we need to put into place to say that any additional stuff happening in this area, you know, what kind of standards do proponents have to meet? At the moment, the laws are so process-driven that it's just, you know, you kind of plod forward and eventually you get to some destination that, you know, pretty much everybody hates at at the end. (laughs) And that's just, it's not a way of legislating. Mm. It's not a way of administering something as important as, as our environment. As and also it's not it's not a great way to support economic activity either. It takes too long to get a decision. How worried are you as Minister about land clearing? Because that was a real feature in the State of the Environment report, for example. I think they said 7.7 million hectares have been cleared between 2000 and 2017 And because of the nature of the decision-making, most of that never came to the federal government for approval. So what do we do do there? Most of it never comes to the federal government for approval because it's in, you know, small Mm. parcels of land. It's on private land. It doesn't trigger the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act because there's not a threatened species on it or something. I am worried about the scale of land clearing in Australia, and I think this is one of the things that, again, we need to bear in mind when we're reforming our laws, our processes, our institutions, a lot of the incentives are wrong. And so how do we change the incentives so that the economic incentive is to protect, conserve, enhance, restore the nature that we've got? Yeah. One of the, this probably is an eye-glazing detail for many of your listeners, but one of the first things I did when I took on the portfolio was talk to the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. You know, he's been talking about doing this kind of wellbeing budget. So an an element of the budget papers that talks about not just GDP and inflation rates and unemployment rates and so on, but actually looks beneath that at some of the quality of life indicators. And of course, one of those quality of life indicators for Australia is what is the state of our environment? Mm-hmm. How how clean is the air we breathe? How clean are our waters? Um, you know, can we, as I said earlier, turn around some of the um, extinction crisis that we're facing and so on? So we need to look at nature-based solutions for our big environmental problems. We need to be able to measure those. We need to be able to drive more nature-based solutions mm. in our economy. Um, so we're looking at things like, first of all, measuring this and keeping yeah. track of it in our budget is really important, but also things like biodiversity credits, which can really give a financial incentive to farmers, say, for regenerating wildlife corridors on their land. You know, it's great for their land. It's good for the productivity of their farming. It's also such an incredible biodiversity resource when people are doing that. Businesses in Australia and globally are looking at at nature-based accounting Mm, mm. so that 
um, they can tell their shareholders and their customers that they are investing in nature-based solutions for the planet. We need to have really good, verifiable frameworks for that in Australia. You know, there's been criticism of some of the carbon credit schemes as not being robust, not, not giving additional benefit above what would have happened anyway. Well, if we're going to have a strong biodiversity market in Australia, if we're going to have nature-based accounting, that has to be designed really well from the beginning. And mm. I know this is eye-glazing for most people. Like, oh, not, when, not listeners to this podcast. No, I know. You, you, <laughs> you, you've got very clever committed people listening, I'm sure. But, but often when people are thinking about environmental activism, they're thinking about one place or one creature and you can channel their enthusiasm, and that's a fantastic way of getting people engaged in environmental activism. But unless we get the systems right, like our economy, our laws, our public institutions, we're going to we're going to be treading water at yeah. best. I want to pick up just on that point about credits. We'll get to water in a minute because there's a couple of head scratches there for me. Uh, <laughs> And I'm sure for you, just on that issue of, well, valuing and also crediting, just two things quickly. So Samuel said, I think in terms of just the land clearing issue that the exemption for logging covered by RFAs, that should go, which sort of sounds a bit terrifying to me. Um, So there's that. But also, I just want to put something else in front of you because I was listening to a number of the first speeches in Parliament over the last couple of weeks and Marion Scrimger actually was talking about crediting and uh, related to the Beedaloo project, which is obviously really controversial new gas project. She floated in her first speech the idea that carbon abatement projects would be run by Indigenous rangers in the NT, right, to achieve carbon or help achieve carbon neutrality on that project. And the the whole idea of Indigenous custodianship Mm -hmm. and stewardship is actually really important as well, which we could probably do a whole podcast on. Yeah, we could. But so those two things quickly. So the land clearing, getting rid of the exemption, and also do you see scope for that sort of Indigenous or traditional owners' involvement in proximate projects? So so I'll I'll try and answer these things quickly. (laughs) On forestry, I think Australia should have a forestry industry and it should be a high value, value add, good quality timber. We've got communities that have depended on this for generations uh, and and we've got shortages right now. We're depending on timber being imported from around the world. Yeah. Like there should be more investment in expanding plantations here in Australia. And we've set aside a substantial amount of money in my colleague, Minister Murray Watt's portfolio, really to to do that, to have a more sophisticated approach in our forestry industries. Um, On the issues that um, Marianne Scrimgeour was talking about in her fantastic first speech, um, I think that um, Indigenous protected areas and Indigenous ranges are going to be two of the most important programs contributing to our environmental stewardship in coming years. So Indigenous ranges, we've said we'll double the number of Indigenous ranges by the end of the decade. These people make an amazing contribution already and that contribution is only set to grow. Uh, I mean, I've met with Indigenous rangers from South Australia to the Northern Territory to the Great Barrier Reef and I see the work they do. It is fantastic. I'd say that we need to also be looking at career paths where people start as Indigenous rangers 
um, moving into other areas of environmental management and protection, I think is the next stage in developing the, the program further. And so I'm very interested in what we can do there. Indigenous protected areas really have much better environmental outcomes when they have Indigenous range of programs associated with them. So making sure that those programs work in a complementary way is mm. like supercharging the benefit we can have. And having Indigenous ranges on Indigenous protected areas investing in things that generate carbon credits or biodiversity credits, uh, another potential funding stream that supports that sort of land really important land management tasks. So we're very open-minded to that. Mm -hmm. Okay, water quickly. Water quickly. I was trying to be quick. I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. no, no, no. Interesting. No, 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 no. Well, that's what I said. I mean, we actually could yeah. we could actually do a whole podcast yeah, on, yeah. on uh, you know, caring for country and all of that sort of stuff. I'm really interested in all of that. But no, water, uh, another, another cross you must bear <laughs> in terms of this portfolio. No, and, and so important. Again, I just want to start conceptually by just asking you a couple of specifics, right? I cannot for the life of me wrap my head around the idea that we can have had two massive El Nino seasons and still not enough environmental flows for the Murray-Darling. I understand it depends where it rains and all of these legitimate things, but I'm just setting up this sort of concept, right, that yeah. how could it be as deficient as it currently is, right, well, in terms of yeah, what I, you've inherited? Look, I have to say... I I've done a trip around the Southern Basin area just recently and it looks amazing. Yeah. It's green, it's lush, it's beautiful. A lot of the wetlands that, you know, weren't there two years ago are teeming with bird life, teeming with fish. Uh, and so there is a lot of good environmental stories to be told at the moment and there's a lot of great environmental stories to be told by changed water use practices. So yep. a lot of farmers, a lot of communities along the river system have put a lot of effort into using every drop in a better way, in a, in a you know, recognising how valuable it is. But we've still got a lot of work to do because as certain as we are, uh, like, what do they say? Birth, death and taxes yes. are the only things that can be certain. <laughs> yes, certain. I think in Australia you can also be certain of the fact that there's going to be a future yeah, drought. Exactly. And so we need to prepare now. We know that there are more people relying on the river system in years to come. We know that and we know that water will become increasingly scarce. And and so we've got to update our science. We're putting a lot of money into updating our science to take, take account of changed um, water amounts and flows and so on due to climate change. And we need to make sure that we're setting aside water for dry years that can keep the river system yes. alive. Now, that 2019 drought that we've just kind of come off the back of, lowest water levels in recorded history, the fact that we had some in water set aside for environmental reasons meant that the river system survived yeah. and it was able to be used really strategically to keep it wasn't great, it was a very difficult time, but the complete annihilation that would have happened mm -hmm. without that management of water was averted and it was done because of the planning that the Murray-Darling Basin Plan represents. And so, yeah, there's a bit of rain about at the moment. It just We just cannot you know, sit back and say, fine, that's Oh, fine yeah, now. no, 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 not what I meant. It's it, just in terms of this recent report, right, that what, there's 450 gigalitres of environmental flows that have to be delivered. Yeah, now, there's, there's, so there's the commitment made to South Australia yeah. to get them to sign on to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was an additional 450 yes. gigalitres of water. Some people describe that as water for South Australia. I mean, it obviously benefits the whole system, but mm. it was South Australia's 
urging that saw it added to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. And of that 450 gigalitres, the previous government delivered two. Mm. So two out of 450 um, in nine years. So nine years, two gigalitres out of 450. It wasn't a lack of money. There's of the $1.775 billion set aside to do this um, $1.3 billion of that is unspent. Mm. It is because they have wrapped up the Murray-Darling Basin Plan in brown tape. Yeah. It's because they didn't want well, they didn't to want, do this. Yes, they didn't want to, didn't yeah, want yeah, to do it. Yeah. And um, that's not acceptable. We, we need to find that 450 gigalitres to return to the system. We are Labor. Our government is committed to doing that. And so, and so how? Is it, is it buybacks? Is it compulsory acquisitions? Is it changing people's water licences so that they can give up more? Or, or what, are the, what are the pathways to that? You've named a number of possible pathways and nothing's off the table at this stage. We're talking to the Murray-Darling Basin ministers, consulting government to government, with them at the moment. There'll be a, a water minister's meeting before the end of the year when mm. these things will be on the table. It's tough. I don't want to pretend to people that it's easy. It's it's very difficult to go from two gigalitres to 450 in the next 18 months when the previous government has done two in nine years. But we are determined to get to 450 gigalitres and we will do it in the fairest, lowest cost, most environmentally beneficial way that we can. We, of course, take account of the impact on communities along the river system. We're talking about 2.3 million people that live in the Murray-Darling Basin. We know that this water is precious to them, um, not just economically, if you're a farmer, irrigator, whatever, but, you know, people feel at attachment, like, mm. to their home, to the river that runs through their town. And we need to protect it for future generations. And will there have to be some sort of process of consultation oh, of in terms course. of yeah, the buybacks? Or, or yeah, the, yeah, of course. So, so how does that all roll out? I just don't actually, I can't conceptualise it. How yeah. does it roll out? Well, a lot of this, uh, obviously some of this is determined by legislation, but a lot of it is determined by agreement between yeah. um, Murray-Darling Basin states and territories. And um, the first stage is uh, working with states and territories on um, projects that they've already committed to, things that they've promised to deliver that haven't yet been delivered. Mm -hmm. And then the next stage is looking at other projects that would uh, remove constraints on the um, river system. We're looking at efficiencies. Uh, buybacks are also, you know, voluntary buybacks are still on the table. The previous government have basically made it impossible yeah. for farmers who who want to sell water to the, you know, to benefit the environment. They've made it so difficult to, to do that that it's, I mean, this is why I'm calling it brown tape. You know, mm. they're, they're just, you know, without making things unlawful, they, yeah. they've just tied it up in so yeah, many made it, yeah, difficulties they've, they've that it's created, in, in practice yeah. it's impossible they've to do They've created these incentives not to do it. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done there, but I feel really actually very optimistic about this because... The, so many of the farmers in particular that I've talked to along the river system say, you know, if you'd talked to me 10 years ago, I was a sceptic, mm -hmm. but I see the benefit of, you know, being able to release water in periods of drought just to keep the river system going. Or I see the restoration of the wetlands on my own farming land or near where I farm and I see what a difference it makes. Nobody I've spoken to so far has said, we should just get rid of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. They, they might have 
things that they wish were different about it or they, you know, That's interesting because it's sort of like, you know, you, you get this impression, right, because I, I cover this very superficially yeah. in terms of water, right, <laughs> very superficially. You get this impression that there's sort of that there are forces out there in the community who are still campaigning for the end of the plan. Yeah, they're called the National Party. <laughs> I mean, I get to, this is a... I think it is a sort of emblematic political argument for some people. But, you know, I've I've talked to a lot of farmers, including a lot of irrigators by now, and even, you know, most of their professional associations and so on say, no, we, you know, um, we have our criticisms of the plan, but we're better off with a plan than, than we were it. before the plan. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, anyway, look, heaps to get through. Thank you for giving me that much time. We'll have you back, of course. Well, that's uh, the show for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, as always, to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of this show. I just want to let you folks know that I'm actually off for a couple of months because I need to step out of the daily cycle in order to write a quarterly essay about Australia's new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. So I I just need a bit of thinking time where I'm not fronting the show. But, of course, we will be continuing to produce episodes each week, as is our want. Uh, it'll be fronted by the brilliant Sarah Martin and uh, the rest of the Canberra political team. I'll be listening, of course, and I know you will too. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.